the biggest stories from the pages of the London Free Press and LFPress.com. This is the London Free Press Podcast with your host, Craig Needles. It is episode two of the London Free Press Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today and thanks for all the positive feedback on episode one, really glad that you could uh, send us that and very much happy with uh, the number of folks that tuned in and sent us messages. It was great. We are off to a great start, I would think, and we're going to continue that here because we're lucky enough to be joined by a award-winning journalist, Missioner Award-winning journalist, Randy Richmond of the London Free Press. Hello, Randy. Hello, Craig. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good, good. Just getting through. And uh, uh, let's get uh, get right to it because I, I, I want to make sure we have a, a ton of time to talk about uh, about a girl, a story that you did. It went up on LFPress.com, was in the newspaper earlier this month. It is a heartbreaking story. It's a frustrating story. It's about a teen girl. But the love shown in the story as well, I, I think, is inspiring. So there's a, there's a lot to it. Tell us about about a girl. Sure. Uh, about a girl is uh, <laughs> about a 15-year-old girl uh, who, whom we can't name for privacy reasons and legal reasons. She is um, has been uh, had been suffering for a long time with uh, trauma from an abusive childhood. Uh, she's living with uh, her adopted parents, who, who, as you say and notice, uh, love her quite a bit. Uh, she had been spiraling down the last couple of years into addiction and mental illness. And she, the story sort of begins for us when she's at London Health Sciences Center, the hospital there, the psychiatric ward, and um, she had been uh, put in there under a form, which means she'd been put in there involuntarily. Hospital was set to release her. The parents and some social workers were shocked by this because she seemed to be ill-prepared to live on her own. They did release her, and that started uh, further spiraling down into addiction and mental illness. She just um, she was uh, living with an older man who has a, a violent record. Her parents suspected that she was engaged in sex work. Uh, so it's just a story of this young girl, 15-year-old girl, who has the legal right to make her own decisions about her own mental health care and physical care. Uh, and it's a story about her parents' fight to get her some help as she bounced through the system. I mean, she touched so many parts of our healthcare and justice system and social services system, bounced from hospital to uh, anti-sex trafficking programs to uh, children's aid, bounced, bounced, bounced. And it took uh, quite a Herculean effort by her parents to get her help in the end, uh, which turned out to be a secure treatment facility for for young, for teens, um, of which there are very few in Ontario. Anyways, is you know one of those long, complicated but harrowing stories of a of a girl who was living on the streets, uh, addicted and mentally ill, and no one seemed to be able to help her. And that's the the part of this that that kind of leapt off the page for me. And the, the frustrating part of this, because I said the word frustrating earlier, is you know we have this system for for mental health assistance, and it's been highly criticized. The system, and this is just a prime example of it not working. This is someone who is clearly um, in a, a destructive situation for herself, and there was no way for the system to actually help this person. And this person was not an adult. This person was fifteen years old. It's it's just it's very difficult to read that there were so many people within the system that kind of looked at it and said, "Well, what can you do?" You know, like I, I know that's an oversimplification but that's kind of what, what how it came off to me right uh, yeah and you know there are a lot of concerned people there 
uh, trying to help her, but they're also, there was always that. So what can we do? She's 15. She can decide on her own. And as someone who's had three children go through teenagehood or adolescence, I question whether a 15 year old raised in a, you know, so-called normal household can always make the right decisions for themselves. Now you have a 15 year old who is uh, addicted to cocaine and crystal meth, uh, suffering trauma, living on the streets, not eating well, yet she has the right to make her own decisions about her own mental health care and physical care. And, and everybody did kind of not shrug that you're right. That's a simplification, but sort of went, well, what can we do? It's, it's up to her. And that was what caused the parents to call the free press in the first place. When the hospital said that way back in February, they were shocked. They were, you know, they were just so appalled by this, but that's the law. Um, and it's, you know, you can question whether people have the right to consent at that age. I was shocked by it too. Um, but yeah, but everybody all the way through people were saying, well, let's try this, let's try this or, don't try this, but it was always up to her to make the decisions. And ultimately that kind of got overturned, overwhelmed, but it took so long to, to get her help that by the time she got help, she was in far worse shape than if they'd just done something at the beginning. Yeah, that's the that's the frustrating part is the, the time is of the essence with these things, with, with a lot of these folks. And that's uh, sometimes not what the system is built for. The system is not built for speed. You know, the system is, is built for, um, obviously some would argue the system is not built for anything positive, but the system is not built for, oh, we've got to make this decision quick and we've got to do this very quickly. You mentioned all the legal hearings that were there. There was a, uh, at one point I know that a lawyer mentioned to the parents, like a, a bill of $18,000 because there was going to be so such significant amount of, uh, uh, of, of legal wrangling that was going to be required here was, it was a lot to go through. Yes, it was. And you know, that it, it, it's, there are so many agencies involved and so many people involved that it, it almost complicates things. I understand that there has to be child welf- welfare and doctors and social workers and legal advocates. But yeah, eventually, I mean, there's a story kind of explains just the steps that were taken bit by bit. And you're right. It, nothing is fast. And just, I mean, ultimately they went through the, she was in the hospital so many times she kept getting in trouble with the law and, you know, being the police take her to the hospital. Police were doing their job, took her to the hospital Hospital would look at her. She might be um, psychotic at the beginning of their stay, but then she'd uh, become normal uh, or appear normal. They'd let her out. She'd be back in the street. It's a story we hear a lot, you know, people in and out of the hospital. That part of the system is already broken. But then, you know, for them, for the parents to consider that, you know, okay, eventually this is not working. Uh, we're going to have to try to get, overtake her authority and put her in a secure treatment facility. Um yeah, the legal wrangling. It's when you look at the law itself. It what parents have to go through. You have to, you have to get us find out if there's a space open, and there's very few spaces, and they're rarely open. Then you have to go to court. Then you have to get your own lawyer because you know the the, the your child gets a lawyer who's going to be a good lawyer and, and will fight to keep the child free or out uh, of the severe treatment. You've got to go get a lawyer. You've got to go to court. Um, you know, in this case, the parents realize well. The Children's Aid Society offered to give us their lawyers if you hand over the kids. So you got to hand over the custody of your child to the Children's Aid Society, which is traumatic. Of course. And then you've got to watch the lawyers battle over all this. And it's it's just this long, expensive process. I mean, again, this I this, you know, she's been troubled for for a few years, but I first came around with this story in February. From February to 
September, these parents fought and some people fought for them. Like I say, the hospitals, they were involved in anti-sex trafficking programs, which didn't do her much good. Um, this on and on and on. Every So many agencies kind of approached this girl and, as you say, just kind of hands off. And none of it was fast. And in those eight months or, or whatever it was, I mean, she went downhill. And I, there were um, wanted posters, like miss, not wanted, missing persons yes. posters for her. And we couldn't publish them, of course, but I've seen them. And it is so sad when the first one that even from last fall, uh, it's a very uh, healthy looking young teenage girl. Um, just looks like a, a normal kid. And then when you go through them bit by bit, they get more and more disturbing. And, but the last, the most recent one in the September, uh, it's clearly, uh, 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 I'll, I'll say a street kid, uh, you know, a kid living on the streets, uh, gaunt, um, scared that look in their eyes of fear and, and you know, false bravado, just the difference in the face alone shows how far she fell down. Never mind all these doctors' reports that noticed she was losing weight. Um, her parents say she was emaciated. Um, she became more addicted, more mentally ill, clearly psychotic, hallucinate she had hallucinations. All this happened from February to September, and all this happened while no one could seem to get her help. Yeah, and something else that, that, that jumped out at me was, and you mentioned it, the weight loss, is every time they saw her, she had, you know, dropped more weight, dropped more weight, dropped more weight. So if you're a, if you're a parent in that situation, you're already worried, and then you see this person, and you, you, see, you see this girl, and oh, she's a lot thinner than last time. And, you know, is she even eating at all? Like, it just, it would just add to a, a situation of unfathomable worry for me. Right. And, and yeah, and your, and your, and your 15 year old girl is either living on the streets or she's couch surfing with strangers or she's living with an older man in an apartment building uh, and you don't know what's happening. And, you know, she, you know, sometimes dressed as if she's, you know, going to go off and, and do sex work. She wasn't eating. Uh, it's just, and, you know, then in the pandemic, of course, now, you you know, there was a couple of weeks there where they didn't even know if they could, should leave and come, you know, to London and, and see, look for her on the streets. So, you know, all this uh, fear is going on. And yeah, every time you see her, she looks worse than she did before. And you simply can't get the hospital and the health authorities and the community mental health and the community children's aid. You can't, you know, you, you as much as you want to shout and, and these parents shouted, they shouted and shouted and shouted. <clears throat> it seems like no one can help. And I know that there were some um, very good people in some of these agencies who were trying very hard, who knew the girl and wanted to help and could see it as well. But it's just, <clears throat> it's mind boggling. And we hear these, these stories before, you know, and we'll hear them again about the lack of uh, people's ability to do anything to help. What, of course, struck me about this story was her age, the fact that she was, you know, possibly being trafficked for sex and the fact that her parents just would not give up and you know you wonder how many i don't think most parents would give up but some must give up and you know when your kids turns 25 or whatever then you definitely give up because you have no control and there just seems to be a massive system with many gaps and no one knows how to fix it we just keep getting dollars and cents from the uh, provincial government for kind of the the people in the middle the people who have mental illness in the middle like you know mm -hmm. which is great but the, the cases of, of people who are suffering tremendously, they, they're not getting the money. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a second. But one thing that uh, that struck me as well, and you mentioned the the, the p- some parents give up. They, they may not give up because they don't love their kids. They may be in a situation where they're giving up because they don't know what else to do. They they right. they, they feel as though they've run into a wall and tried everything. These parents. They, uh, to to an extent, got lucky, but they kept pushing, kept pushing, kept pushing. Uh, but I, I think there would be some parents that would care just as much that would get to a wall and and they wouldn't know how to get around it. So they would give up because they're just, they just, they wouldn't think there'd be an option. Right, exactly. And, you know, these parents are middle-class, uh, well-educated parents who had the resources to continue fighting. I'm sure there's parents out there who have the love, but not the resources, have the love, but not you know, don't know, don't have the money or don't know where to go. Uh, and there'd be some parents out there who may give up because they themselves have struggled in life and it's just, they've had enough. And, you know, there are, there are kids on the streets in London for sure. Um, and you don't always know where they come from, but you, some of them have come from, I've talked to over the past, you know, 20 years, some have come from just what we'd call ordinary middle-class families. And, they hit the streets and they, you know, they get addicted and that's the end of that for a long, long time. And some of them return to an ordinary life when they're 30 or 40, but they've already been so scarred that, you know, they, they've been damaged by this life on the streets. And these parents, I mean, just a sheer amount of work they had to do. And as the father said to me, if he had known, he wouldn't have thought it was possible. And they also said there's, you know, there's, no roadmap for this. They could not, they can't write a book to other parent for other parents about this. They don't have a guidebook. Mm-hmm. They said, we don't know. We just, we just kept doing all these things and this one thing worked out, but nothing seemed to make sense of them. Yeah. And that, that I remember that quote from the story where he essentially said, if, if other, if other parents came to us for advice, we would tell them, we don't know what to do. We don't know what you should be <laughs> doing right now. And that to me is, uh, uh, that, that to me is a very telling sign of the, there is not necessarily a, a, a playbook here there. It's just, just do what you can and, and sort of work your way through it and figure it out because th- th- that that's all you can do. Right. And you're going to rely on in, this is why I always have a problem with systems. When you rely on the goodwill of individuals, um, to help you, that means that the system is broken just because in this case, I think they had a very good um, child welfare worker and a couple others. So they had some very good people and lots of agencies have very good people. But if you have to rely on that, then there's a problem with the system. The system shouldn't mean that only you only get lucky if you get the lucky, you get the right people because what if you get the wrong people? What if you get a person who doesn't care? What if you get a, a children's aid society that doesn't offer up their lawyers. What if all these things happen, right? So they're relying, they, they just, as you say, they just kind of threw everything at the wall, hope something would stick, but they got very lucky because they had some, a few good people. And if those few good people were not caring as much or were jaded or, you know, whatever, they may not have worked. And mm-hmm. that to me means the system is broken. A system should work regardless of who is in the different positions. And I don't think it would. Yeah, let's let, let's talk about that. Uh, I know this is a big question, but from from your experience, from from reporting this story, from other stories, what needs to happen in the system? Because I think we all know that there are some massive overhaul needed. You've talked to advocates as well. What needs to happen in this system? Yeah, well, it has to start right from this from the start, and that's I think at the psychiatric uh, units of hospitals, the psychiatric hospitals, and I know that they um, they are bound by law for how they keep people inside. Uh, their their walls, 
And we don't want to go back to the, the days. No one wants to go back to the days where you just haul someone in because they seem a little different than you and throw them behind the lock and key and say, that's it. You know, you are, you know, you're crazy as they used to say in those days and that's it for you. But the many parents and other people would argue this swung way too far the other way that the rights uh, under the law of the, of the, of the of people who are, you know, psychiatric, Ill, psychiatrically ill has gone too far the other way and nobody you know they have so many rights that you can't even look after them i'm not so sure we need an overhaul of the law but we might need to interpret some of the law differently and i know that some there's no i don't think there's a standardization of how doctors interpret the laws that allow them to keep people i think that psychiatric hospitals are overcrowded we know there's often a shortage of psychiatrists in london um so even if you can get in the hospital you might be waiting for days for help there's no access public access to how the psychiatric units work we don't know what goes on in there we don't there's no sort of accountability to the public i mean are there enough people are there enough rooms are they treated well who knows um you know you have to start with the hospitals there um the hospitals are still not great at how they plan discharge i mean they discharged this girl into homelessness and possibly sex work and that was a discharge plan the discharge plan was give her a cab chit off she goes to where she wants so, you know, there's problems within the units, there's problems overseeing the units, there's problem in how they discharge. And then once they get out, it's even worse because, I, you know, there's still a lack of community care. And again, it's it's a huge lack of care for everybody with mental illness, but even more severe for people with severe problems because they are farther down the road of mental illness and they need more help more quickly. And that's where the gaps are. So, you know, is it money perhaps it's not just money though i think there needs to be an overhaul of the system but you know there's been so many commissions and reports overhauling the system each government comes in um and says we're gonna do this that and the other thing and it doesn't work so it's a huge question you know that i don't know what the answers are totally but i think that if you if a you know a, a lay person like myself can you know, if they asked me, I could say, well, here's 10 things I've learned about the system from this story. Surely there's other people who are experts who can say these are 20 things that we can fix now with a bit of money or a bit of rearranging. Uh, I mean, even the fact that there's only three treatment centers in Ontario for kids with severe mental illness who need to be, you know, locked up for a while um, to, to be treated. There's only three of them. They're not run the same way. There's no sort of policies or guidance for how they're supposed to be run. They all kind of sprang up and there's not enough beds. And that's just for, for those kids. I mean, there's, you know, what, 28,000 kids on the Ontario wait list for mental health for other kinds. So that's a, sh a shameful thing. And, you know, but again, uh, although mental illness, the stigma has been eased and, and all that, um, it's still, I don't think the dollars are there that they should be. And I don't think we understand it very well. Uh, one of the uh, women I quoted in the story uh, uh, said, you know, we don't, we don't notice that when we see it and when we see it, we don't know what to do about it. And that's still the case for society, regardless of all the improvements we've had. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely the case just because we are to me waiting for what may or may not occur next year. We're waiting for what is happening and it's just quite frankly at this point uh we've been waiting way too long and people's lives are being negatively impacted because of it and and that's that's the part that really really makes me sad and really makes me upset right and we do tend to you know shrug it off because and this is a problem it's it's complicated it's a complicated um 
illness. It's a set of illnesses, obviously. It's not all one. A mental illness is kind of the catch-all phrase we use, but there's so many different kinds, which so many different kinds of treatment. That's already complicated. Um, the system's complicated. You know, people just kind of give up. And, you know, I know there's lots of people who glance at this story. And, oh, here we go again. Another story about another person with mental illness struggling. And, you know, how many, how many more of these can we take? Well, you know, unfortunately there are many more of those stories and people have a tendency to just eventually shrug it off and go, well, you know, it's not my kid or that's her choice. So that's too bad. What can I do? And that's a very good question. I don't know what ordinary people can do to change this system. It, it's so complicated. It's such a difficult issue to, to wrap your head around, but there are points in the system where everybody can see, Hey, there's not enough money for, for kids for secure treatment. And they've also said to me, Hey, there's not enough money for when they get out. So when this girl gets out of this uh, treatment facility, there's probably not going to be a lot of help for her afterwards. So who knows what's going to happen there. So there's not enough money there. I think that there are points in the system where experts can say we could use more money or change things around at this point. Uh, I, I don't know, Craig. I mean, is it just because we just don't still don't care enough about mental illness? Only, only, only we only care about it. We can go on Twitter and talk about it. Like, I don't yeah. know. It's, I don't know about the commitment we have as a society to, to help. Well, where's the pressure for politicians, right? Like where, where, where is that coming from? Cause that, that to me is something that uh, is, is there some of the time, but not consistently enough. And it's, it's, it's missing a lot of the time. And that's, that's, that's a big problem as well is politicians talk a big game about, Oh yeah, we're going to fix this, but then there's no accountability for it. Right. And, and you know, the politicians answer to voters. So, yeah. you know, it's a small, smaller percentage of kids who are in the situation like this girl was in. Um, so what they want to do is they want to send money to schools where kids who are functioning well enough to be in school, they're going to get mental health help there, which is great. Um, they're going to send money to public school or elementary schools and high schools and do that. They're going to do the, the, the middle, the middle area, which is, you know, low hanging fruit, pick it off and look good and spend a few million dollars here and a few million dollars there. And, you know, they'll look good. And most people go, great. My kids, if they're struggling at school or they have anxiety, will get help. And that happens a lot. And that's, that's wonderful. Um, but the people who are on the streets, the people who are headed for the streets are the people, you know, the, the kids who are, you know, damaged and the adults who are severely damaged, you know, no one, they don't vote as much. Um, they seem to be just you know, viewed by politicians and the public as sort of a collateral damage of our society, whatever, you know, drugs and mental health. It just, they're kind of, we kind of give up on them uh, a bit because, you know, what can you do? And you're right. There's no political pressure for that. Uh, the, you know, the people from the um, Children's Mental Health on Ontario, uh, Kim Moran, she said, you know, she's been pushing the province. Uh, what was it her? Or was it the, the <laughs> wait a minute, let me try it again. The, there are two, um, two people, one from the Canadian Mental Health Ontario and a woman also from, um, from Canard Family Services. And people like that have been pushing the province uh, for years about this gap in, in treating the most, uh, most needy children. And it's been falling on deaf ears. And, you know, you're a politician and you've got a pool of money to spend. You're going to spend it on the one that gets you all the attention from all the middle class parents whose kids are at school. You're not going to spend the money on the program that's really hard to figure out and hard to pay for for that small percentage of kids who are going to up on the street. 
that's that unfortunately is a cynical view of politics but i think it's an accurate one yeah no i i, I couldn't agree more it's uh it's, it's both cynical and accurate and, and i'll say i know a lot of londoners express frustration for when they're in the downtown core and there's this person asking for money and they see someone on the side of the street who's yelling at nobody or there are situations where they feel as oh i don't want to deal with this the, the, this the, these people who are downtown and and if you're wondering why that's the case this story is an example of that, that there isn't places for folks who need it to go to get help in a lot of cases. So they wind up on the street. They wind up not being able to eat. They wind up being addicted to drugs. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking. So the next time you're saying to yourself, oh, why are there so many of, quote unquote, those people downtown? Think about this story because that should provide you a lot of answers. Right, exactly. And, you know, you know, healthcare and social service people say, like, you got to get people early, right? And that means really early. That means going to, in their, you know, in their view, which I agree with, they, you go to families that are struggling right off the bat with toddlers. You go to, you know, you go to schools early. You get uh, people like this girl early, early intervention, because then you're right. They will end up um, uh, on the streets. And I had a, a, a an email from a, a uh, a woman in London who works for the um, the safe consumption site, uh, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the safe you know, where you can go use uh, drugs safely. And she said, she thanked me for the story. And she said, you know, th- I see the people like this when they're 30, 35. So you hit it right on the nail right on the head, Craig. She sees people like this when they're in their 30s and 40s, and they've had so many years of trauma and addiction that that's, you know, she's sort of supposed to be helping them use drugs safely and maybe nudging them towards getting some help if they want it. Well, you know, that's 15 more years they've had on the street, 15 more years of sleeping rough and, and, you know, doing drugs unsafely and having mental illness grow. So you're right. When you see those people, yeah, that's, that's what's happened. They were once 15 year old kids, uh, you know, out on the street and you, you mentioned, you know, it's the same thing for the, for um, adults who are on the street. They're showing obvious signs of, of psychosis and that. When we talk about homeless programs, we like to do the, the nice middle part where the, and I understand that you go for what's easiest first. You know, you get people in the motels and you get them in the shelters and homes, the people who are easiest to handle. But those people who are left over on the street, left out on the street, the ones that you see that maybe disturb you or bother you or scare you, they need the most help and they are getting the least help. Mm-hmm. Just like this girl needs the most help and for a long time was getting, you know, the least help. Yeah. It, it's a funny thing. We do we do like to and I understand, you know, if you got a hundred people and you can help eighty right away, you might do that. But help the eighty right away. But don't forget about the other twenty. And I have a feeling that that's we have a tendency to help those 80 easy to help people. And then the other 20, we go, ah, well, we'll see what we can do and right. kind of go with that. Yeah. You, you, you solve the, the easier to solve problems first, but the people, the other 20 are the ones that need the most help clearly. Uh, we'll leave it there. But before we go, Randy, have you, ha- have you been in contact with the parents since this story, uh, w- w- was posted since the story was in the paper, what type of conversations you had with them since then? Uh, I have been in, in touch with them. I'd like to get in touch with them again. They, um, in the first couple of weeks, uh, their daughter was having a bit of trouble. Um, she had, um, done well for the first week and then fell into a bit of, uh, psychosis, uh, deep psychosis in the second, uh, week. Um, they had talked to her a couple times and they were setting up a, a, a zoom call with her. Um, 
they're you know he just sort of raised the point and, and brought home the point that this is a long-term um healing going on here and the fact that she can be kept in there for you know four to six months gives the psychiatrists and the counselors their chance to let her rise and fall and and sort of you know become more aware of what's going on they can they can ride out these these um these speed bumps you know they can they don't have to they're not going to let her out when she looks good as the hospital often did and um they can just let her rest easy when she's having a psychotic episode so they're okay um they're relieved um there's a chance i mean i think she the the girl can appeal at some point she can appeal Mm -hmm. being there which says the parents a little bit alarmed um so halfway through her stay i think she can appeal um I'll, I'll be checking in with them now and then. And obviously when this girl is released, you know, I, I would I'd love to meet her and talk to her. Um, I never had a chance to, and I'm not sure how well that conversation would have gone anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, th- she was doing fine and they're relieved. And, you know, right now she's got a, a winter ahead of her where she's not, you know, s- you know, scrambling for money and drugs on the street. She's, in a place with uh, rules and people who were looking after her. So the parents are mostly just kind of relieved right now. Yeah. And I, I certainly understand why, uh, why that would be the case. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there, Randy, unless there's anything else that you want to, uh, want to add before we wrap up when we're talking about, uh, about a girl here. No, just that, you know, these individual, individual stories come to newsrooms all the time. Uh, and we have a tendency not to write about them because they're, very personal and complicated and it's very hard to do because we can never use their names hardly. We rarely can use people's names. They don't want us to, or there's privacy laws, hospitals, um, use always every hospitals and agencies say, Oh, we can't say much about it, an individual case because of privacy laws. It really limits. I, I know what they're, why they're doing it, but it really limits the ability of, of journalists to tell this, the real story when you can't, get people to comment on specific cases. Mm. I find it, it's, I find it sometimes they hide behind it. I'm not always sure that their intentions are. Uh, always, the, the, the it's intentions not to are help always, the patient it's to help the hospital. In a lot of cases, right? Yes. It's often <laughs> exactly. And uh, another cynical view, but I've, yeah. you know, I've no, I, I don't disagree. I've had the same <laughs> view before. So yes. And we all have had that. All journalists, we've all, all of us, we journalists have had that problem and it makes it difficult to tell the story. So we don't tell the story. The stories are complicated. So we don't tell the stories. And I might not have told this story if it wasn't for those parents pushing, um, if it wasn't for the fact that uh, they, they'd given me information and, and the girl was this 15-year-old girl on the streets. So I guess I just want to leave with, you know, you see this story and you're not, maybe not see another one for a couple of years, but it's happening every day. So just, you know, it's just, the story is just symbolic of, of hundreds, maybe thousands of people across Canada, kids across Canada going through this. Yeah, very much so. We'll uh, we'll have to uh, leave it right there. Randy, this was a, a, a great conversation. Thank you so much for uh, uh, giving us some time talking about About a Girl with us today on the London Free Press podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's Randy Richmond, journalist with the London Free Press uh, here on the Free Press podcast. Uh, we'll be back for another edition of the podcast on Tuesday. And of course, you can always subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, that's where you can find us, plus on YouTube and on lfpress.com. Thank you so much for listening today. This is uh, episode two of the London Free Press Podcast, again, back on Tuesday, right here on the podcast. Mm -hmm.